clubhouse. Welcome back to a galaxy far, far away for the How Uncivilized podcast covering part four of Obi-Wan Kenobi from Disney+. Plus. This is Paul from Pod Clubhouse, and with me, as usual, is Master Mark. <laughs> I don't know if we've given away your last name on the show yet or not. <laughs> How can I be on the council and not be made a master, Paul? Take your seat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is covering part four, what I think is the shortest and probably most straightforward episode of The Bunch. But maybe we'll uncover something that I that I missed. There were two plot lines, A and B. Obi-Wan trying to break into Fortress Inquisitorius to rescue young Leia, and Reva showing us that she is the worst person in the universe. Felt like a transitionary episode, kind of, and it was short, and I was enjoying the, enjoying the uh, internet memes on, you know, like, you know, R2, we need to be going up, not down. We need these episodes longer, not shorter. Or yeah. uh, Anakin, uh, you're shorter than I expected, General Grievous, you know? It's like <laughs> Yeah, I've seen a lot of reaction to the show so far on the internet, and unlike The Mandalorian, which seemed to scratch everyone's almost universal itch for needing that kind of Star Wars right then, Obi-Wan has been a little more hit or miss. I'm enjoying it so far, but it's not what everyone's been hoping for, apparently. Yeah, I think the opinions are all over the place. I mean, I've been really enjoying it. I think it's staying true to the characters and, you know, Ewan McGregor and Leia's chemistry and their, and, and what they're doing there has worked really well. Some of the action, I think, is we've, we've noted has been a little clumsy and things like that. But I think it's, it's expanding on the lore. They're definitely throwing in plenty of Easter eggs because they know their audience on this one. But yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think they're the episodes one, two, and this one, to me, were kind of on the same level. This one might have been, you might say this one was a little bit slower than some of the others, but, but that third episode to me was on a different level. What do you think about the moment when so far Leia had known Obi-Wan Kenobi as Ben Kenobi? So not exactly breaking canon with her delivery of her father's plea for help later on, where she appears to not know who in the hell he is because she referred to him as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Were you on a star cruiser? Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. What's this? A general Oh, wait, did, did that happen in this episode? Obi-Wan is dead. Yeah, she calls him Obi-Wan. Oh, I missed that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was kind of hoping they would stick with that. Maybe, you know, chalk it up to she didn't remember because she was 10 years old. I don't know. Maybe something will come forward where maybe, and this is, this is a, a flyer, maybe they have to do a little bit of a Jedi mind trick later to zap out the memory of this abduction, or at least her rescuer, to kind of retcon the fact that they knew each other when she was 10 and doesn't appear to know who he is later when she's around 19 or 20. I always get a little nervous when tying in sequel stuff, but I guess it could give more weight to her naming her only son, Ben, like, you know, like that part of it. But yeah, it is, it is a little weird, but you know what? Would you rather get cool Star Wars content and, and have a, l a little mild retconning or just not do anything? So <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like I've noticed that a lot of the fans from the Generation X age group are just happy to have it, you know, because we're the group that went from Return of the Jedi to a couple of TV Ewok movies to nothing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> un un until The Phantom Menace, unless you were novel readers. So we're the ones that know what it's like to go for a very long time with no Star Wars. 
Whereas now we have the instantaneous 24 hour troll cycle, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And you know where it's, and, and part of that's fun. Cause it's like, how many Wade memes are there out there now? All right. Right behind you. Wade! You know, Wade. <laughs> Poor Wade in this episode. But if you ever say, you know, hey, I'm right behind you. I'll be right there. That's never a good sign. No. You're in trouble. Exactly. In this kind of situation, I now I know, don't ever say that. Just put on all thrusters possible until you're sure you're safe. Don't make any promises. I was a little surprised to see the T-47s in that scene. I personally would chalk that up to their appearance in Empire meant that the Rebellion was using some really old shit at that time. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that would be, yeah. uh, what, 12 or so years on from this? And they appeared kind of old here. Yeah, I always thought for some reason, oh, okay, those are geared towards winter weather. And so when I saw them, I was a little bit like, oh, those Rebels came from a, the Ice Cube planet was from, it wasn't cold, despite Ice Cube being there. <laughs> but I was cool with that. And by the way, Ice Cube, man, that was like another flea moment. Like, wait, is that Ice Cube? I mean, who else is going to pop up in this thing? Like Madonna? What's going on? (laughs) Right. Cher. uh, (laughs) George Clooney, you know, all sorts of people. If you recall in Empire, there is a quick statement. Someone says, we're having trouble adapting the speeders to the cold. Are the speeders ready? Uh, Not yet. We're having some trouble adapting them to the cold. Hmm. That's what they're talking about. It's the T-47s because they weren't able to take them out looking for Luke, but they could the next morning. Uh, but, but but not that night. Anyway, let's talk about this episode. Like I said, there were two plots. Let's go with Reva and Leia first. As you mentioned in the first episode where we covered Obi-Wan, Reva's bringing the hate. Man, is she. My initial theory that she was maybe trying to get closer to Vader, I think that's scrapped at this point because she right. had her chance and she is way not powerful enough to try shit against him. To be honest with you, I am still confused by what's going on with Reva. You know, we learned, she said, you know, we lost, she lost everything when she was younger. I think she Mm -hmm. told Leia that. I had a droid when I was younger, too. It was taken from me. Like everything else. I think that's a a key line. Key line. And does she blame the Jedi for this because they took her away as a kid? Or is it that she actually blames Anakin and the Sith? And she does want revenge secretly against them. But like you said, I mean, she comes across as such a true believer and does so many Scythian type things. I mean, I am just a little baffled of what's going on and where this is going. I mean, at the very least, and I think we've seen uh, Star Wars Theory mention this, so I won't take credit for this on my own. But at the very least, they could be setting her up for making her look like the worst person in the world just so that she can come to the light at a key moment, foreshadowing Vader's own change of heart years later. I'm not so invested in Reva like I was in Vader to believe in that moment in in the way that 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 would bring me a whole ton of satisfaction with, with her having an arc like that. Coming into the show, I thought that's what might happen. I thought it would be an opportunity to have Reva be a parallel to Anakin where maybe Obi-Wan could have influence over her and convert her to the light. But that theory's out the window. I mean, when you're torturing 10-year-olds... I'm sorry, Leia, I really am. You did this to yourself. What are you doing to me? Right. Um, and then and you're saying, oh, you're doing this to yourself, you know, blaming the victim, if you will. That's just so Sith. I, that's why I'm confused. I'm, you know, what is her motivation? Maybe she does just want to be the Grand Inquisitor. Maybe it's as simple as that. I don't know. Maybe, man. I mean, 
we went through the whole Clone Wars series, and I, I mean, Asajj Ventress was always presented as someone a lot like this. You know, not a true Sith. Master. There is no margin for error this time, child. You must prove yourself worthy of being my apprentice. I am worthy, as you shall see. A Dark Force user who was trying to curry the favor of her master, mm -hmm. but she never tortured children that I recall. Yeah, what did you think uh, when she was mind-probing Leia and she was like, you're strong. Is this a stare contest? <laughs> you're strong. And I was wondering, I was like, does she know that she's... Leia is like super force sensitive or is it just normal people can be like that? That is a great question. My sense is that a force user touching another force user or force sensitive would know it rather than just coming in contact with some mental fortitude that's unusual. Something in her internal midichlorian <laughs> radar should have pinged. <laughs> you know, even though Le Leia is not trained just genetically she has a superior force sensitivity to anybody else going, especially well, maybe maybe in that setting, there'd be the other Inquisitors. But still in that room, it should have been clear. Well, you know, even Qui-Gon had to get a midi-chlorian count on Ani on baby, An you know, little boy Anakin. I've been wondering, what are midi-chlorians? So maybe they can't sense that. And that's just the way it works. That's true. Like we've discussed with other force powers, it could be that sensitivity to just random force presence is not a ubiquitous power. Like when Darth Vader senses Obi-Wan in the instances where we've seen that happen, it's because he is so keenly familiar with Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense something, a presence I've not felt since. That he can do that, that his radar goes off. But it doesn't just seem to go off for anybody. So maybe I'm overestimating the force to force sensitivity that a Jedi or dark force user should have. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That sensing of presence that happens has to be someone that you know really well, it seems like. Yeah. Or you're the emperor and can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Even survive millions of times. Yeah. I saw a pretty cool Leia meme that I would believe that the little droid who plays a key part in this episode, Lola, was named after a pet that Carrie Fisher had when she was about Vivian's age in real life named Lola. Oh, that's cool. Yes. So it didn't come from nowhere. So like you mentioned, the droid stylings came from Batteries Not Included, very likely. And the name came from Carrie Fisher's real life pet. So that's, cool. you know, to that point, they, they got me on that. I liked that, how it was, um, oh yeah, I put a tracker on the ship and I was like, wait, how did she do that? And then boosh, you know, they showed, they zoomed in and I was like, oh yeah, I remember she was, I don't know what Leia was trying to do there. She was trying to get the droid to maybe fly away to go connect with Obi-Wan or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that was the only thing that she really manipulated uh, physically was Lola. So that's the only thing that makes sense. Because I was racking my brain like, you know, she didn't know ships were coming, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> no. How did that work? But yeah, Caroline called it when we were watching it. She's like, it's obviously the droid. I'm like, duh. <laughs> She's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We watch a lot of TV. You might be interested to know that on the last day of the ATX festival that I attended while at your house this past week, I got a, yes. ch I got a chance. I did not get to interview Joby Harold, the writer, the head writer 
of Obi-Wan Kenobi, but I did get a chance to talk to him very briefly following a panel he was participating in about caretakers of intellectual property TV. So he was there with a writer from the House of the Dragon. He was there with Scott Gimple, who is better known as the creative executive behind all of The Walking Dead properties on AMC. And he was there with an IP executive from the Russo Brothers company. What did you learn? That's really cool. Well, what I learned was that, A, all the other writers thought that Obi-Wan was killing it right then because they loved the, the third episode. Something very interesting to me was that when they were talking about story and talking about the things that make people drawn to a story and then honoring an intellectual property's true heart, I guess, even though they all had their own properties to which they had their own allegiances, Star Wars was like a universal language to them. They kept coming back to ex examples from Star Wars hmm. to make their point. That's really cool. It's a, you know, it's a great playground of storytelling, so that makes sense. And so I did ask him just one thing. In an earlier podcast, I had talked about the intentional blind spots that George had built in to the property that he didn't want anyone to cover ever in novels, comics, or, or anything such as Yoda's background or for a long time, the Clone Wars. And I asked him if this period was one of those. And he said he did not think so. He thought it was time to tell this story, but it wasn't left intentionally blank until now. It was just, this was the right time to tell it. Hmm. Does he, did he indicate he has any access to George or the writing teams? He did not. No, no. That would be fascinating to know. I'm working on trying to get How Uncivilized a slot on his schedule for an interview, probably just after the season ends so that he can talk more freely. Paul, don't tease me, dude. I'm trying, man. I have his people's contact info, so more to come on that. Well, you know, Paul, you're kind of a big deal now. I don't know if we can send a little, a little shout out to Paul, the big brain on Paul, for <laughs> winning the T television, the Austin Television Conference trivia situation and winning the grand prize. Congrats, dude. Thanks. I mean, I am the recipient of of a lifetime's worth of luck in that single moment, I think. But I did know the one clutch question answer when I when I needed it. <laughs> so I, I can take credit for that one thing. But all the other steps that, that got me to that point, uh, I'll only take partial credit for. All but right, thank spill you. it. What was the question? We got to know. The question was, from what indigenous tribe did Grace first encounter when she left her original park and entered Westworld. Oh, man. Yeah, it was, wasn't it some Native American tribe? But I, I have no idea. What is it? The tribe in Westworld is called Ghost Nation. Mm. Wow. Remember and they paint themselves that. white? Yeah, that's really, that's, that's obscure. That, that was a difficult <laughs> question. So Yeah, I got that one. That's so great. to New York, uh, Caroline and I get to go. So you get to go on the red carpet for the Westworld premiere. How cool. That's, I bet, uh, when you told your better half, was she just like jumping off the walls? Yeah, she could not believe it. She was like, how are we going to make this work? And I said, we're definitely going to make this work. <laughs> and so we are midway in getting it to work, but it's it looks like it's a, it's a done deal. Sweet. Yeah. So anyway, uh, more to come with Joby Harold, head writer. The other thing I'd like to report about him is that from the people that aren't digging the series so far and they question the writing talent or the writing dedication to the source material, I'd say you 
probably would want to meet the guy before you'd form that opinion. I met him briefly. I listened to him and the other participants of that panel talk for a while. And I have no doubt that he loves Star Wars. He's not some hired gun that was like, well, I'll write Star Wars this week and I'll write Downton Abbey next week and I'll write, you know, it wasn't like that. No, he is a Star Wars fan. Well, I think the internet crowd is just overly critical. Like like Anakin says about Obi-Wan, he's overly critical. He's overly critical. He's <laughs> he's holding me back, you know, throwing stuff across the room. But it's like, dude on the internet, you do better. You go write a show. You go write a Star Wars script and see. I mean, it's got to be very difficult to pull off something, you know? So I don't know. I think it's good. I think he's doing a good job. And the, I mean, they've got a, a season two greenlit. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because you and McGregor, when he was at Celebration, he kind of teased like, hey, you're ready for episode four, episode five, six. What about seven, eight? And he was kind of getting the crowd pumped. And then there was this rumor. I don't know if you heard this, that they changed the ending of this of Kenobi. I didn't even I don't click on that. I don't want to know if there's spoilers. I don't really want to know. But that's the rumor out there that they changed the engine in ending, perhaps because they're going to do season two. That's an interesting rumor. I would hope as a watcher, that season one feels complete. It's not unusual for some sort of cliffhanger to be left dangling there. So to entice us into a season two, which I'm fine with, but, you know, Leia better go home <laughs> in episode six. You know what I mean? I think she's going to be done, to be honest with you. I think they wrapped her up. I wouldn't be surprised if we just see a quick handoff. Frankly, I was expecting a Luke adventure this season something where he is kind of in the shadows on Tatooine, keeping danger away from Luke, and Luke never even freaking knows it. That's kind of what I was expecting going into this season. Well, I mean, with only two episodes left here, I think, you know, we have the tracker situation. You're certain the tracker is with him. So I think if, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Vader, which... I think people don't talk enough about the fact that he is conflicted. I don't know. I don't know about this rumor, this idea that, oh, because he wasn't strong enough and he wanted a, a challenge. I think he's conflicted. I think it's his path to redemption. I think he needs Obi-Wan because it ends up being Luke that redeems him, but he doesn't know about Luke. I think killing Obi-Wan would kill any good that's left in him and he just can't get himself to do it. But I think since he thought about that for a moment, he changed his mind again. Now he wants him. And I liked how he... He storms in the room and force chokes Reva. You know, he is not happy. I love that line where, you know, she's like, I put the tracker on there. And she was like, oh, I've underestimated you. It was a very Vader feeling. And and I'm thinking that after this episode, it's order all the Star Destroyers, bring the whole Imperial fleet. Let's go. We're all going to them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of them and just fire at will. And it's going to this is going to be the setup for the ending, I think, is right here is they're coming at the Rebels. I mean, with two episodes, you just don't have a lot of time to do anything too crazy, I think. One possible scene that I could see set up with that scenario would be that they make it back to Alderaan by like the skin of their teeth, right? With everyone, right? Several Star Destroyers, an armada of Empire military force present. But they've landed at a planet with no weapons, no fleet of their own, no navy, and no beef with anybody. They haven't done anything wrong. So they can't actually do anything because it's too early in the, in the career of the Empire to go smashing planets. They still have nine years to go before they send the Death Star that way to do that exact thing. You know what I mean? Sort of like a foreshadowing, like, like, a, like a very sad one, but, but we all know it's coming as far as Alderaan's fate. This backstory we're getting with Bail Organa and Leia 
and maybe they, in the in the eyes of the Imperials, are potential rebels or they're doing some nefarious stuff. And then we see in Star Wars Rebels, we have Leia, animated Leia, helping the rebels get ships for their fleet by pretending to be an Imperial sympathizer. And when really she's working behind the scenes for the rebels. So maybe they know that about Alderaan. And that's maybe there's some some logic that goes into why Tarkin and team decide to blow up Alderaan. Alderaan is peace, but we have no weapons. You can't You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. Maybe it's not just for the heck of it because Leia's there. It's maybe they they planned that specifically because like, hey, look, if you, you're rumored to be working with the rebels, your planet's going to get blown up. Like their suspicions about rebel sympathies have gone on too long. So Leia being the linchpin to destroying Alderaan was just sort of a convenient excuse to, to flex their might. Yeah, and that's what's cool about all these various Star this various Star Wars content that ties together is that it's just adding more to the story, more lore, more motivation for what happens in the future. Well, in the interest of time, let's flip over to Obi-Wan's storyline with Tala, his his new acquaintance, rebel sympathizer slash imperial mole (laughs) and the rebels that he meets and talks into helping him with his mission to save Leia. Yeah, it was great to see Obi-Wan on a mission. That was definitely a highlight. You can tell, you know, in the beginning, he's practicing the force. He's trying to get back to form. And then we start to see him really start kicking butt. He's got the Jedi robes on. He's looking, he's looking, he's slowly getting back to it. And maybe, you know, his force connection was so weak. Maybe that's why the Qui-Gon thing hasn't happened. But as his, connect, yeah. his, yeah, as his connection grows, maybe we'll get the climax where he's back to form. He's tangling with Vader. And I was thinking, you know, he's, they both have a father figure like connection. Speaking like we we're talking about before, this connection in the force. I would love to see, I think I mentioned this before, but what if Qui-Gon shows up and they're fighting? He's like, okay, stop it, boys. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that would be a really interesting take because that would probably stop the fight, whatever the fight is. And there might even be some sort of argument, you know, that would let Obi-Wan slip away back into obscurity. And uh, that's that's all Qui-Gon can manage. Because I, I, I would imagine it's it's some sort of, at least it's presented in like the comics and the books, that the ghost form of the Jedi isn't something that they can just sort of willy-nilly do. It's like a thing that's somewhat taxing for them, too. They have other business on the ghost side that they need to mm-hmm. be doing. And so it's not just like an automatic thing for them. That would be interesting if Qui-Gon some, like restrains Vader, you know, gives him a little talking to. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm really excited to see what the, how they play that. We've got this Joker, Batman and Joker vibe going on. I, like I said, I don't think Vader wants to kill Obi-Wan. They need each other. <laughs> right. I made you, you made me, right? <laughs> I made you, you made me first. Um, I liked seeing the Fortress Inquisitorius in a little more detail. The way that the place is run is, a, is kind of a question mark in terms of like Reva is kind of in charge. Fifth brother was was very upset with the way things were running. Uh, like you mentioned in the last podcast, uh, this is a moon of Mustafar that had not been explored very thoroughly earlier in the series, but they explained it in this one. So Vader's not there all the time, but he calls Mustafar, his little castle there, home so he can he can make a trip there without much trouble at all. But the fortress itself, if you haven't played, this is to listeners, uh, haven't played Fallen Order, man, y- y- you should. It's almost like you're playing through a mission watching this. Um, the detail that they put into it in terms of matching how the game looks to the show, which is 
for someone that's looking like a Star Wars sci-fi nerd angle, that kind of consistency is is nice to see because it's pretty rare that you see game TV movie properties follow through so thoroughly like that. Absolutely. Talking about the various aspects of the escape. Yeah, well, you know, the the whole mission where, you know, I liked it. It was, to me, uh, we had the callback where Obi-Wan's got the breather on, like he's going to Gunkin City. Yeah, yeah, right. And I always liked about, you know, like the Clone Wars or I think Anakin and Obi-Wan made a good team because Obi-Wan's pretty conservative and reserved, but he's very capable. And then Anakin's super aggressive and smart. They would always, in the Clone Wars and things like that, they just go right at the objective. You know, none of this side stuff, they're, they're just, they're going right at it. I think that rubbed off on Obi-Wan and you just see him, you know, they're just, okay, let's just break into the thing and go. That reflects into the scene you've already mentioned when he comes in and has his discussion with Reva. Seeing the behind the scenes pictures of uh, this show, I've seen where they have a, a stunt guy for Darth Vader for certain lightsaber scenes and they have another actor for other scenes. And then it makes you wonder like, when is it that Hayden does his bit? But I know they did the same thing with the Mandalorian. Pedro Pascal wasn't in the suit every time you saw the Mandalorian. But I I like to think that that scene of him just striding in and picking her up by her throat about 10 feet off the ground was Hayden. I bet you all of it has been, to be honest with you, just because that's what, you know, he's into it. He'd, he'd want that. So I, I bet you we'll get a helmet off scene at some point. Well, we did get that um, that flipping back and forth at the beginning of this episode of both men in their back to tanks. You know, he had said that he wanted Obi-Wan to feel like he felt. And so we got to see the montage flipping back and forth of them in the back to tanks, seeing their burns, their wounds, and that Obi-Wan's was just a small taste of the suffering that Anakin feels every day. Now you will suffer, Obi-Wan. But it was still enough to put him into a full back-to-tank. I like that, yeah. They're processing what happened there, that big fight. That worked really well. Yeah, I mean, it drove it home to me that this is his, you know, his life. And if that was your life, how motivated, if... That's all you had every day was just hate and a bath and a back to tank and then wearing this this suit. You you might start to have some feelings about the person that put you there. And that's what they're really playing up in the show. And what did you think of uh, when Obi-Wan was kicking butt in that corridor and he did like the forced unleashed thing where he was holding back the entire ocean and uh, lots of blaster bolt blocking with lightsabers? I can't get enough of that. Well, I'm glad he found his force powers, man, because that barely being able to move that whatever it was across the crate at the beginning, whew, that wasn't a, that wasn't a very promising start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a youngling stuff, man. Come on. Back in the day, in that period between Jedi and other stuff, there was a company called West End Games that produced a role-playing game for Star Wars that a lot of people really enjoyed. In that game, you could portray a number of different Star Wars characters, you know, like diplomats or fighter pilots or Jedi or whatever, right? But one of the characters that you could play was a failed Jedi. And I was always intrigued by that because what they pictured was an old guy. It was just a line drawing, but an old guy who could do simple tricks. He could like move shit with his mind and that kind of stuff, but... You know, was he going to lift the X-Wing out of the swamp? No. The idea was that he went to the academy, he didn't cut the mustard, so they kicked him out. (laughs) 
And for that moment where he couldn't move that whatever it was very smoothly and effectively and him looking scraggly with the beard and the beat up robes and all that, that was almost like that line drawing come to life. He was the failed Jedi from the game all those years ago. Yeah, it's really worked well in this show, that whole arc where he's now getting more powerful and reconnecting with the Force. And I think that's going to culminate in his experience with Qui-Gon and, you know, adopting the living Force ethos where he's then going to chill out a lot and just kind of trust in the Force and be the laid back Alec Guinness that we know and love. And in episodes to come and years to come, I could see where he will have learned that shunning the Force, turning himself off to it, wasn't the right answer because it left him too weak to be able to properly deal with with the threats to the kids. Because if he was full speed, would things have played out the same way? I don't know. Yeah, that was cool. Vader picked up on that. He's like, you, the, the years have made you weak. That was great. The years have made you weak. What else, uh, Paul? I mean, we had the Jedi tomb situation. Oh, I know boy. when I first saw it, I was like, whoa, was that Plo Kloon? You know, the guy they, they did it use as a stand-in for Luke. And he was killed in um, Order 66 in a fighter. I'm like, well, maybe they... But I was like, oh, maybe that wasn't him. And then I, I rec- kind of recognized the skinny alien guy and, you know, looked it up. And it's this Tara Sanub. Did you uh, did you research that? No. If you if you know who any of the people in Amber are, tell us. Tara Sanub was, was in the Clone Wars. Uh, was in, I think, more than one episode of the Clone Wars show, animated series. Um, he was a Jedi master, and I guess his species lives a long time. So he was on the council during the High Republic. And I'm thinking that might be one of the reasons they showed him is that they're trying to tie in to the High Republic stuff that they're going to be producing. Because apparently the Acolyte show is going to be in that era, potentially. Oh, okay. And so that's my guess there. And then there was some Fenland-looking guy. Don't know who that was. They had the uh, the youngling, which, of course, that was harsh. I didn't recognize. The other ones, I have no idea. The youngling was interesting to see because he was still wearing his, his youngling helmet as if he had been collected right from the temple. Right. Which generates questions. <laughs> you know, just, just who was this kid that he was so important that they needed to collect him right from there and then stick him in amber. is And is that some form of carbonite or is that just like they are there forever? That is it. That's a done deal. That is like their trophy room. Yeah. Some people were saying that they were encapsulated alive in that stuff, which is crazy. Some people thought, was that the Master Skywalker? What, oh. what are we going at for tea? <laughs> oh, that was eerie. Master Skywalker, there are too many of them. What are we going to do? I could buy that. That looked about like, and that kid would be nowhere near that age, obviously, but they would have used some other means to create that body in there. Were there any other entities, the sentience in the amber that you could recognize? That's it, but uh, I thought that was cool. I thought it added to it. They had the, you know, had the lightsaber trophies, but this is now taking that to a whole nother level, and it gives you a little bit more insight into what the Inquisitors are you know what they care about (laughs) that it's their passion is hunting jedi so kind of makes sense perhaps the way that they hunt the force sensitives and they all just sort of disappear maybe it's less of a trophy room maybe it's more like cold storage so if they're down an inquisitor they can go thaw one out and uh, train them up Oh, that's interesting. See, I thought they were definitely dead, but I see what you're saying. Like, could it be like a carbonite situation? I didn't even think of that. Or maybe they could potentially be rescued. 
Yeah, I mean, it's tough because they're underwater and, <laughs> and all that. But yes, that is an area that is for the show. I don't, I don't recall that being in the game, but I mean, I played through that last section of the game quickly and I haven't gone back. They don't let you go back, actually. You have to have like a save game right before that. And I didn't. I just raced through. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's so that we can get you out on time. What predictions do we have moving forward? You had mentioned perhaps the Armada converges on wherever the Lola and the little transport of rebels pops out. Anything else you want to see in the next couple of episodes? That's pretty much what I think is going to is what I'm expecting. With the Wade situation, we got the a sense of the suffering of the rebels that's out there. I think that's what they were trying to depict. And, and Ice Cube was like, no way, I'm helping you. All right, I'll help you. That's fine. Um, <laughs> that was funny. And there was a little bit rushed, maybe. I have to say it was not a good day because they had to use their space AKs. But yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think Obi-Wan's going to uh, get the help from the rebels. We might do a, t- a classic Star Wars thing where you have the big space battle happening. While at the same time, Obi-Wan is facing off against Vader. Yeah, that is a classic way for Star Wars to end up in the climax is multiple battles happening at the same time. Yeah, because if you think like the Rogue One, they had a huge battle there on, um, uh, what's the name of the planet that they got blown? Scarif, yeah. So at this point, I guess the Rebel fleet is probably pretty small. So I don't know if they would even send all their forces like they did there. So it'll probably just be a a smaller battle, but that would be pretty cool. Because, you know, that, that's one thing that Star Wars, the original and in the blockbuster form, you know, just cutting between, you know, Luke and the X-Wing and then all the action and then Han Solo's coming and tying together the different pieces of action all happening at the climax of the story. Uh, people have copied that left and right because it works. Right. With Star Wars, there was just the trench run, but then there was Empire. There was the lightsaber fight plus the escape from Cloud City. And then Re- Return of the Jedi was the lightsaber fight, the space battle, and the shield generator all kind of happening at the same time. And the and the prequels pretty much did the same sort of thing with multiple things happening at the same time. It helps build the tension, helps draw you in. It's a it's a pain to edit, um, I'm sure, <laughs> in terms of keeping the the emotional tension in the right place for the for the viewer. But uh, it's well worth it when it works out, and I and I do hope to see something something akin to that later on. Maybe maybe around Alderaan, like I was hoping, sort of a PR mess if the Empire decided to go through with taking action against Alderaan, so they call it off, only to wait a few years to blow up the whole place. Riva change of heart, man. I don't know. I mean, yes, I kind of see that as a thing. Will I buy it and be totally invested in hoping that that's what happens? I don't know, because I just don't have any background for it. I don't have a lot of history for it. The reason, you know, when we wanted to, when when Vader made his turn in Return of the Jedi, even though we had only two movies to go by, we also knew that he was uh, Luke and Leia's father at that point. So we had a lot invested in him already. <laughs> in the prequels and it turns into like a whole nother thing that's invested in him. Now, if Reva does the same sort of thing here, yes, that foreshadows it and kind of matches the history repeating itself idea that Star Wars has been using to tell its stories in the last 20 years. But will that matter to the audience? Because we don't care about Reva the same way that we did about Vader. That's that concept. I know George Lucas always talked about the rhyming between the stories. You know, 
you could say you could say oh it's a knockoff of itself but it is kind of poetic where lots of little things like in this episode when obi-wan powers down the torture chamber it's like and it reminds you of episode four when he turns off the tractor beam in the death star or when he does the little noise making with his yeah same thing exactly like all those those little callbacks here and there and then, by the way, he was like chopping at those stormtroopers. It was like he's chopping wood. Like the lightsaber wasn't cutting through. And I was talking to my son about that. He was like, well, maybe you actually have to use the force to cut more powerfully. It's not actually the lightsaber that can do it. And I was like, oh, that's a cool thought. I never thought about that. Uh, we know that the, well, I'm pretty sure that the lightsaber can make it through the armor. At least it could through the clone trooper armor. Yoda showed us that, if you remember. Mm. Yeah, maybe you got to go pointy in first, though. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and do it with a big frown on your face like Yoda did. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, this has been a joy chatting with you as usual. Um, we'll be back next week to cover the penultimate episode of the season, episode five, part five. Hopefully we get more than 35 minutes of Star Wars bliss out of that one. If people wanted to find you online, Mark, where would they look? At JiggyNut on Twitter. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week, Paul. JiggyNut on Twitter. And as usual, I'm Paul V. Daily on Twitter or Pod Clubhouse on Twitter or Instagram or www.podclubhouse.com. If you want to check out all of our offerings, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or any of the Pod Clubhouse podcasts so that people can find them and listen to our lovely opinions. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.